This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. If you are somebody that remembers the 1980s and 1990s very well, you may very well remember this voice. A lot of people think America can't cut the mustard anymore. That quality counts for nothing and hard work for even less. And commitment, that went out with a hula hoop. Well, when you've been kicked in the head like we have, you learn pretty quick to put first things first. And in the car business, product comes first. And product is what brought us back to prosperity. High mileage, front wheel drive, quality products. That a clip back from 1984 of Lee Iacocca, the only man to have led two of the three big automakers in modern times. He passed away last week at the age of 94. Lee Iacocca joined Ford after completing a master's in mechanical engineering from Princeton back in 1946, and he rose through the ranks. He was considered the father of the Mustang. After 32 years with the company, he was fired by Henry Ford II in 1978 and then wooed by Chrysler that same year. He's credited with keeping that automaker afloat back in the 1980s. Among his achievements, the purchase of American Motors, which did include the Jeep brand, Chrysler's most popular of vehicles today. With more on the life and career of Iacocca, we're joined on the phone by John Paul McDuffie, management professor here at the Wharton School and director of the program on vehicle mobility and innovation here at Wharton's Mac Institute. And also joining us on the phone, Jeffrey Sonnenfeld, senior associate dean for leadership studies and professor of leadership practice at Yale University School of Management. John Paul, great to have you back. Jeff, great to have you back with us as well. Thanks. Good to be here. Thanks. I'm honored to join you both. Thank you. Obviously, John Paul, we're talking about one of the legendary figures in the auto industry. How do you best describe him? Well, I mean, every every tribute to Iacocca starts with what an amazing salesman he was. And he started off being an amazing salesman of cars, uh, later on of companies, uh, in a way, of the U.S. as, a, you know, uh, to rally patriotism in in saving Chrysler and getting people to buy Chryslers, and uh, and of course himself. So um, that's all true, and we're going to talk about that. I think he had amazing skills as an executive that you know are sort of part of his uh, his his achievements. Vehicles like the Must the Ford Mustang, the Chrysler minivan are closely attached to him, but you don't just get those vehicles to appear out of nowhere. There's recognition of a market. There's championing a concept through all kinds of barriers and budget hurdles and things like this. And he was just masterful at that. I think he learned a lot of those skills at Ford, and he really displayed them to best advantage in turning around Chrysler. Jeff, your thoughts? Uh, I I couldn't disagree with John Paul at all. I would just add to it that uh, as much of a of a car genius as he was, as John Paul suggests, he was a uh, a master uh, marketer, yeah, definitely trained as an engineer, and uh, ironically that he would have been Robert McNamara, sort of the, the last in the line of succession of the old whiz kids uh, from uh, Tex Thornton and R.J. Miller and this group of uh, engineers, that he was an engineer that was sort of a renegade that left the, uh, his engineering origins to uh, to uh, springboard into the world of selling and, and promotion. But he really is the uh, epitome of the uh, the boss's brand as the celebrity CEO. We had, <clears throat> you know, some before the turn of the century type, turn of that century's tycoons of 
Thomas Edison and uh, uh, certainly uh, thinking of Andrew Carnegie, uh, uh, Rockefeller, uh, uh, Henry Ford. These people were not above self-promotion. <laughs> In fact, they were uh, uh, relentless self-promoters that we often don't appreciate today. Uh, but that had somewhat fallen away in the gray flannel suit era. As he rose to the to the surface in the 50s, uh, he uh, put his name out on front of things. So he became um, hyphenated with the names of the brands that he was selling. Uh, so I think that as the celebrity CEO, he ushered in something way ahead of Steve Jobs and, and uh, uh, Jack Welch and these others who branded themselves by their enterprises. He was way ahead of that. But also on personal resilience, something completely different. This is a, a, a kid who was a, a sickly kid in high school, despite his competitive instincts, couldn't really compete on the athletic field. And similarly, uh, as they went off at Lehigh and the rest, he, he did it through academics and then through the business world. And resilience that way, and as you, you mentioned, after being uh, forced out at Ford, three days later, wandered into the CEO's suite to, to turn around Chrysler. So... Uh, which was really hemorrhaging badly, and uh, yeah. that that's a great model of both personal uh, resilience several times over, but also institutional and enterprise resilience. We're joined by John Paul McDuffie of the Wharton School, Jeffrey Sonnenfeld of Yale University. We're talking about the life and career of Lee Iacocca, former chairman of uh, of Chrysler. Uh, it, Jeff, though, when you think about that celebrity that he had and his presence for those of us, as I mentioned at the top, that, that really started to think about cars in the 1980s and 1990s, we really do associate him almost primarily with Chrysler, and really all of his unbelievable success at Ford is not really considered a lot by some people. Uh, no, and there there was a, a whole team, uh, Pauling, how Pauling and others that actually w- developed the Mustang. But he was the guy who was the champion of what was a, kind of a lifestyle car built on uh, a lot of the core elements, the platform chassis of the Ford Falcon initially. Uh, he came out with a, a very accessible sports car for, for people to, uh, to sort of capture that, that Pepsi generation spirit. Yeah. He, he, he was great at that, and several times over at, at Ford, uh, even in the 1950s, he came out with a very zippy marketing campaign about paying $56 a month for a 1956 car, and 56 for 56 on a uh, uh, and a kind of extended payment plan that was quite novel at the time, but whether or not it was through product and financing innovation uh, or uh, or a lot of other uh, uh, areas where he was quite a pioneer at, at ford he he did a magnificent job the The story of him losing out in ethnic bigotry is sometimes uh, misunderstood uh, the the uh, champion role that he played for Italian-Americans uh, is something which 99% of the uh, obituaries uh, have missed over this past weekend, in that the Italian-American community saw him really as as a, a rock star, as a superstar, coming out of an era where uh, they felt second-class citizenship in so many ways, and especially in corporate America. He was such a strong pillar of that. However, uh, it, there were some stylistic issues that I don't believe were purely rooted as, in, in an ethnic bias that forced him out at Ford. In fact, Phil Caldwell had dramatically, Philip Caldwell as the vice chairman, had dramatically outperformed Lee Iacocca, and I actually saw the company's confidential internal 
succession documents of a year earlier, 1977. He was forced out in 1978. I saw the 1977 documents where, in fact, Phil Caldwell was listed first uh, as the likely heir apparent in any kind of crisis for Henry Ford II. So when he got nosed out, though, he uh, it was largely read as an ethnic slur that Phil Caldwell, who was more of a wasp uh, image for uh, for uh, for that business, would step in and, and that Lee, that somehow Lee Iacocca, who tried to do an end run around appealing to the Ford board, trying to do an end run around Henry Ford, who yeah. controlled the board, was was not a smart move. John Paul, I mean, just the fact that that he was so linked to the Mustang and, and really for, I bet a lot of people, the association between Lee Iacocca and the Mustang is probably not there. Yeah, and it, and it really should be. Um, you know, as Jeff says, maybe he wasn't leading the product development team, but uh, he really shepherded that project through. He, I think, very much, you know, trained under McNamara to learn to do the analytics. He understood that there was a growing market of young buyers, more American families were buying second cars. The first car might be the practical one, but they were really going to be attracted to a second car that was a fun car, uh, again, off the platform of the Falcon, so that cut down on development costs, but, you know, really smart styling moves with stretching out the front end to make it look more powerful and uh, shorten up the back end to make it look speedy. And, and then, you know, very short product development cycle, very cheap, and then marketing like crazy so that yeah. the minute it hit the market, it just sold It sold like a million, uh, million vehicles in the shortest time ever, I think, of any new model. And I think that record still holds. And, you know, and he's on the cover of Time and Newsweek with the Mustang. You know, it's like his car in everybody's yeah. mind. And that is absolutely hit the biggest event of his early career that set the stage for everything that followed at Chrysler. But without his shift from Ford to Chrysler, I, I think some of the dynamics around around Detroit would have been different over the you know from like 1980 on. Correct, John Paul? Well, sure. So I mean, there's several features of that. Um, he first of all, uh, in the Chrysler turnaround, he uh, appealed to Washington and really needed to because Chrysler couldn't get any financing. It was in such terrible financial shape. And he made the case that Chrysler was too important to the American economy to let it fail. Uh, he used his, uh, you know, his considerable skills and uh, I think started with a core of Italian-American congressmen who helped back him, but then uh, got Jimmy Carter on board, got the union on board to back it. Uh, this was not a bailout. This was a loan guarantee. Yep. So the loan still came from the banks, uh, $1.5 billion. They didn't borrow all of it, and they paid it back five years early. So uh, in every way, that way of working with government support but doing it in a way that didn't make it look like a handout or a bailout was uh, was very important to, to many things that, that followed. I think the other thing is that his – uh, overseeing of the K car platform strategy at Chrysler became so important to uh, so many of the survival strategies of the American and, and other companies. You know, this single new architecture of uh, the K car became the basis for almost all of Chrysler's product line um, in the mid 80s. And it was a radical departure from the past. It was front-wheel drive. It was, uh, you know, a transverse uh, engine. It was, 
uh, easily reconfigurable. So the first models out, you know, the Aries and the Reliant were sort of bland, but uh, fuel efficient and sold well. And then they could stretch it to variants that were more upscale, like the LeBaron. Um, you know, the amazing return on investment for that, again, not an easy thing to orchestrate, uh, was hugely impactful. Jeff, your thoughts on, on that impact of that? Well, I, I agree. As, yeah. as we slide from the, uh, his, his genius and contributions at Ford into what, what John Paul has taken us into the history of Chrysler, really, there would be no Chrysler uh, automotive company today were it not for him. It, he pioneered the whole idea of a business government bailout that way. Of course, uh, it was uh, heavily played upon for TARP and other other ways that the government has jumped in on the GM bailout, uh, and, you know, GM, uh, and uh, definitely benefited, of course, uh, from this uh, decades later. Uh, but the early return was so strong, and, and it also this happened in the early 1980s. It was, I think, in 1980 itself, where the company was hemorrhaging and, and got the got that bailout. They were losing uh, $1.7 billion, and they wind up, uh, three years later, quite profitable, uh, $1.4 billion or so. It was, uh, and the early payback, as John Paul said, it was a, a great endorsement of what uh, some complain about today as crony capitalism. It, uh, our, our trading partners certainly had much more of a symbiotic relationship between industry and government than some of the, the neater lines in the sand that were drawn, or at least theoretically drawn, between sectors before you yeah. start figuring all kinds of trade incentives and things uh, and, and other advantages that farmers to shoemakers were, were getting from various periods in history, uh, that somehow the auto industry felt they deserved it and they, they got it through him. So it was a model of business-government relations that way that many many drew upon. But the K-car flexibility um, from an engineering and marketing sense, I think John Paul is exactly right. And we don't want to understate, I know there's so much to cover in our limited time, but uh, the, the Seward's folly, the, uh, the, yep. the Louisiana purchase joking that came with the AMC purchase, yep. a lot of people thought in the 1980s buying that was pretty foolhardy, that, that uh, the old uh, maker of Nash and Rambler cars was collapsing. But they'd had the good sense earlier at AMC out of, I think, uh, Racine, Wisconsin, somewhere in Wisconsin. They had bought the old Willie's Jeep Company. Yep. Yep. Uh, and that turned out, of course, to be, as, as you mentioned in your opening, uh, the Chrysler's strongest product, strongest car. And the, the Jeep uh, it turned out to have been a, a, a brilliant move on his part in the Chrysler days. Now, I, I guess, uh, John Paul, I, I, you, you can't. I don't know if he could foresee the success that, that Chrysler is having with Jeep right now, but but still, if you can, take us back into that time. And what was it that, that was that driver for him to, to see American Motors and at least to see potentially, I guess, something with that Jeep brand? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to open that question up just a, a little bit further. Uh, so start off with the thing that followed the Chrysler bailout, which was a big trade negotiation between the U.S. and Japan which led to an agreement to limit Japanese imports and also a 25% tariff on Japanese light trucks, which was a category that eventually included SUVs and minivans. So actually that gave the U.S. a big head start in that category and a dominance which it still holds. Second chapter, the minivans. So this was a, a, another extension of the K-platform, but uh, is a, uh, I happen to know a dissertation by a, a talented uh, guy who came out of NYU, Dan Engler, wrote about this, all of the car companies, all the big three, understood that there was desire, a market, for a family mover to replace the station wagon. 
at GM and Ford, that product idea was assigned to the truck division, and the truck division had vans, they had rear-wheel drive, they had a bunch of, you know, status quo ways of approaching that product category that kept them from, they just blocked it. They said, no, we don't see a market for it, we don't see any reason to do it. Uh, Iacocca knew all of that market research from Ford. Within months, weeks of his arrival at Chrysler, he green-lighted the minivan project, and at Chrysler, they didn't have a truck division, a separate truck division. So actually, they were much more ready to take the front-wheel drive ideas, unibody, the fuel efficiency advantages of the K-platform, and they hit the market first with the minivan, and that was another huge success. So that opened up that bigger vehicle space. And I'm guessing, although I don't know for sure, that that sort of kept him looking at the next expansion of that bigger vehicle space and maybe attracted him to Jeep. Now, I think part of why it didn't maybe get as much favorable uh, um, reception at first is that it followed a bunch of uh, arguably more disastrous uh, acquisition decisions that Iacocca oversaw. Gulfstream planes, Lamborghini, Maserati, not exactly a good fit to the Chrysler brand image. But Jeep was the keeper, and, of course, it's turned out to be huge. Well, and later on in his life, he even tried to get into the EV market as well, John Paul. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, uh, you know, another person recognizing a potential market, and in this case, trying to get a a startup going with uh, old GM rival uh, Bob Stemple, ahead of his time there, and I don't know that the product was ever much good. It's really a shame, but yeah, not that we want to divert too much into General Motors, but uh, you're exactly right that Bob Stemple was uh, decades ahead of his time, and uh, uh, a a particularly inept General Motors board fired him as the last guy on the total boat, last guy on the board to jump in, and and the the legacy of Roger Smith's and others' failures, that they uh, they pushed out this great engineer who becomes CEO, but really gotten GM into electric, you know, EV with with the vault way ahead of time, and it was Rick Wagner. His hands were dirty on having killed that one among just about everything that went wrong at GM. You can you could lay at the feet of of Rick Wagner, but uh, but you know, yes, uh, I think in terms of product innovation, once again on the minivan. He wasn't the engineer. Who was that? Hal Spurlock, I think, was yeah, wasn't yeah. a jump off. Who came over? He from knew Ford. how to he brought it. Him he saw the Ford. opportunity and could bring it to life. And Gulfstream was a bad diversion, uh, uh, but all the automakers went into some some bad diversions. In fact, most of heavy industry was misguided at that time, going for a portfolio approach of in, investing in what they thought were going to be countercyclical businesses that took them out of their core areas. That Westinghouse had no reason going into the real estate business, and everybody else, and you know, selling insurance. For Xerox, it was just a shame. It was a very unfortunate period that the Boston Consulting Group's product, uh, Lifestyle Co model, got oversold to too much of American industry, and these guys were were victims too. Jeff, you mentioned his linkage, obviously, to the Italian American community and and how he was a a rock star. I think you add that in, and kind of with. The commercials that we saw once he was at, at Chrysler, the commercials we saw there, kind of that no-nonsense approach, I think those two components really did resonate with the American consumer. Absolutely. He was out there saying that the, that the pride is back. And, you know, he used to say if you can find a better car out there, buy it, as you heard in the ads. Yeah. And, and then when they re- proven, had proven themselves 
is saying, yes, the pride is back until there's still this surge of, of demand for the, uh, the efficient, high-performing, uh, safe-seeming uh, uh, Japanese cars. He, of course, was really angry about that. And you remember there were times with the partnership with Mitsubishi, he, he would take a, yeah. a, a Ford car, a Chrysler car, and have it rebranded as Mitsubishi, and it would be uh, uh, received so much better in the consumer surveys just as a branding issue. And he was very frustrated about that, and he he used to call it a Teflon kimono, and sometimes was being <laughs> accused of even Japan bashing at, at various points. But he was frustrated by that. Another thing he was a great champion of, and it's so great that Wharton should be waving the flag around today, is he was a great champion of uh, of the Mid-Atlantic, and especially Pennsylvania, as a, as a product of Allentown, and uh, yep. of course uh, uh, Bethlehem, where he went to school in Lehigh, and then uh, one of his early careers, uh, early career positions was stepping out of Princeton. He returned to uh, to Ford, of course, to take a job in, in Chester. So, yeah, the, the Philadelphia and the general area, that's a big footing for him. But there's also the the, the part of Iacocca, Jeff, outside of the auto industry and, and all of all of the activities that he had outside of that work that he loved to be involved with. Uh, later on in his life, I, I, I heard that he, he was quite the writer as well. He was part of the Statue of Liber- uh, Liberty's revitalization as well. There, there were so many things. He, he obviously was a, 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 a maven in the auto industry, but he truly did love this country. No, he really did, so much so that in 1988, he truly was a serious contender for the presidency. And it was at a time, I, I was working with Doug Fraser, the former president of the United Auto Workers uh, at that time, who told me that he actually, while he had plenty of differences and fought uh, on many fronts, on, on labor issues and especially on some safety issues that uh, where it wasn't perhaps a strong suit of Lee Iacocca initially. And he later became a champion of, of uh, mandatory seatbelts and even airbags, but initially he fought them, uh, is that uh, Fraser said he would have supported Lee Iacocca for the presidency, except he said, uh, and I've published this in his quote elsewhere, that, that he... Um, uh, never could imagine that a CEO who'd never held elective office could become president of the United States. Uh, but uh, at one time, and and John Paul was it was actually with me uh, as a, a I think a fellow at the time at the Harvard Business School, when I had Doug Frazier there addressing the MBA students with his uh, eloquence and silver hair and economic uh, global uh, sophistication. The MBA students there said, "Well, wait a minute, you're not what we expected a union leader to sound like. We f- expected some fist-pounding, barrel-breasted, balding, uh, uh, obscene uh, uh, general manager type." And he and he said. Uh, Oh, you know, you got me uh, uh, confused with uh, with Lee Iacocca. Sort of their image of the union <laughs> boss was, in fact, what the CEO looked like, which was a bit of an irony. John Paul? Yeah, no, I think these other activities of Iacocca's are uh, are certainly part of his legacy. And, uh, yeah, he... He introduced himself to America in turning around Chrysler, and and that became part of you know the CEO really being the face of of the company, face of a brand, uh, CEO celebrity as as Jeff said, his uh, popularity reaching the point of being a serious presidential candidate. Uh, I think his work for the Statue of Liberty is one of his proudest accomplishments, and of course as the son of immigrants. Uh, who had faced a lot of discrimination? He uh, he cared deeply about that project and right. and, and did a wonderful job with that. Uh, yeah, you know he he, he had his blind spots. He was he wasn't great on safety. He he wasn't uh, great on. He he fought a lot of things about uh, fuel efficiency and safety in the early years. Yeah. 
I think he was a little had a little bit of a blind spot with respect to why consumers were responding to the Japanese products. You know, he he denigrated them. He wanted to talk up the American brands, but he didn't realize that the high reliability, the fuel efficiency, some other practical aspects appealing a lot to female yep. uh, consumers who were having a bigger role. Uh, you know, and in, in many ways, with the K car, he he didn't refresh that product line soon enough, and so they went from the boom years to the bust years pretty quickly. He had his blind spots, like anyone, but um, a pretty amazing uh, legacy for Lee Iacocca. You know, the interesting comment that that I, I read recently, Jeff, uh, that Iacocca made to the Associated Press back in 1992, and it talks about how he believed himself to be a better leader in tough times than he was in easier times. And here's the quote. I'm built that way. Some guys fight better with real ammunition. On maneuvers, they goof off. My adrenaline flows when you really are in the trenches and things are tough. If you can, take a moment to talk about that quote in terms of his management and leadership style. He loved a good challenge. He loved adversity. He was extremely competitive throughout his career, early career when they brought in somebody, uh, a guy named Seaman Knudsen, who went by the nickname Bunky, uh, that he came in from General Motors, and, and, and Iacocca saw that as perhaps a career blocker. He uh, uh, put together a team to uh, threaten to quit, to walk out, have a mass exit, to go over to Chris Kraft Industries, and that drove out Knudsen. So he was always ready for a tough a tough fight as he fought with Doug Fraser later on for the CEO job and then the Chrysler resurrection. But then when Chrysler got in trouble in the mid-1990s, he got together with Kirk Akorian and attempted a turnover, which unfortunately uh, Chrysler yeah. at that day didn't see the sense of humor in that and wound up stripping his name from the plan to name their innovation center after him because they saw him as, as an adversary. And unfortunately, even though just between us, uh, Bill Ford, who was quoted kindly in remembrances of Lee Iacocca's influence, Bill Ford Jr., uh, and, and his career, the current chairman of Ford, and, and how wonderful Iacocca had been to him as a mentor. Uh, many sources have told me this, and you heard this here first, that when they wanted to do a 50th anniversary celebration, which they did do of the Mustang, uh, Bill, the Ford family blocked the return of Lee Iacocca to Ford. Wow. Uh, some of the legacy of that feistiness, that they, that they didn't have a sense of humor about it either, as Chrysler did. And so sometimes there was some blowback to that, that feistiness, but uh, he, he loved a good battle. John Paul? Yeah, no, I think that's right, and and um, uh, you know he he put himself uh, in that situation. He signed up for the Chrysler job at a very dark moment, and then delivered on every front. And yeah, I do think that when things got good at Chrysler um, is when his attention went elsewhere, and you had some of those uh, dubious acquisitions, and and uh, that happened really in some of the later forgers too, with some products like the Pinto, which uh, which okay. went seriously bad. So. Yeah, some leaders are, are are best at the at the really tough times, and and their uh, attention wanders in the good times. It, it, you know, we're starting this over from the top, uh, and we yep. don't have the time for it. I know, but you're so right to raise the pinto. We'd be negligent to yep. not get into it. It the adversarial style almost got in the way of listening and improving. Yep. But once again, we see that the revisionist, uh, in both the engineering and legal history, show us 
that the other subcompacts were just as dangerous, not to forgive the Pinto and, and how little it would have taken to move that yep. gas tank from right over the rear axle with little barrier. But still, uh, the Vega, Nova, and others had uh, similar problems and with the exact same accident rate. But he did get branded with that problem. Yeah, and, and Jeff, you, you see a lot of this in terms of the remembrances of, of Iacocca that you focus so much on, on you know, the innovation and the, and the things that he did. So with all of this kind of put into play, the good and the bad, how, how will you remember him? Uh, as a, uh, a, an inspirational legend... Uh, that, uh, as Hubert Humphrey used to say, uh, never give up, never give in, is that that feisty spirit that he had, I think, is a, is a, is a, a great source of inspiration. The resilience that, uh, like Nietzsche said, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, is that he always came back even tougher, and, and that's a great source of inspiration. John Paul? Yeah, I think these larger-than-life uh, American characters who put such a stamp on our uh, on our country, on our economy, uh, they're always flawed, and we should always remember the flaws, but I think we should celebrate them. I think there's something uh, very wonderful about Lee Iacocca's story in the context of America. Gentlemen, pleasure to have you with us today and give us your insight on, on, a, on a true American legend. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, John Paul. All the best. Thanks a lot. Thank you. John Paul McDuffie, management professor here at the Wharton School, director of the program on vehicle mobility and innovation at the Mac Institute, and also with us, Jeff Sonnenfeld at Yale University School of Management, senior associate dean for leadership studies and professor of leadership practice. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.